All right, this is the A. I'm Reg Clay. Normally I would have Norman G, but Norman G is doing a double-double. I believe he's doing um, uh, Lucia Berlin. I believe that that is the, uh, the show. But in any case, he is doing a matinee. He's probably on stage right now, and uh, he'll be um, doing that also in the evening. But I have a fantastic guest, John Hutchinson. John Hutch. How you doing, Hutch? I'm doing fine. Red Saints. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I've been I've been bugging I've been bugging you to get you on the A for a while, and uh, finally I finally have you now. So <laughs> it's fantastic, Hutch. You and I we have uh, shared the stage. We did I think the last thing we did was Pride Open, but we also did um, 100 Years of Political Theater and 100 Years of Sex Acts. I think you were Don Perlin and you were standing there buck naked for about uh, a full hour. And was it a Carol Churchill play? I forget what it was. No, no, no. It was Ethel Fugard. Oh, yeah. I did yeah, the Charles Churchill thing as well. But Fugard, yeah. that was when I was naked yeah, in yeah. the statements. <laughs> Back when I had a body. I can't do that now. No. <laughs> well, love is canned. Yeah. Oh, hold on. I hear the, uh, the tea whistling. We're going to hit a pause right now. Okay. And we are back on. Yeah, so, I mean, you, I'm trying to think. Uh, I know that you're 81 years old, and uh, have you been acting since your 20s? I mean, does your career span 60 years, 50 years, a half century, right? Yeah, um, you know, when I was a a kid in Los Angeles, uh, my mother uh, fancied me to be the next Mickey Rooney. (laughs) It took me around to agents and booking people and got my 8x10 glossy and picture on a horse. And... um, Nothing really came of that because they soon after that they moved to San Diego and so I put Hollywood in my background. But in San Diego, I I got involved with Craig Knoll who was running a place called the Globe Theater mm. in Balboa Park. Yeah, and I got a, a role in my uh, high school years uh, in a play called Hans Brinker and the, the Silver Skates, mm-hmm. and it was about a, to go. It was about to go into rehearsal, and again. The family moved. My father was an inventor. He had to get from here to everywhere. Wow. And so uh, I had to give that roll up. But I went to my friend who I was going to high school with at the time at St. Augustine, uh, Augustine High School in San Diego, mm-hmm. my, my good friend Victor Buono. Yeah. And I said, Victor, I have this role they want me to do. Um, would you like to take a look at it? So he went over and he met Craig and he did the role. And he was soon after there soon after that he was seen by an agent and uh, went to Hollywood and Victor became something of a name and I became something of a college student just not kind of rapid. Now Victor Buono, is that a name that we should know? I mean, what, what Vi- Victor was in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane ah. he was in Four for Texas mm-hmm. he, he did a lot of work in that, he, he was in The Strangler, he got in a, ca- he got in a, a nomination for Best Supporting Actor from the old glo- uh, from the Golden Globes, uh-huh. and um, yeah, so he he had a, a quite a nice career. Wow! So you um, and I know how that can be very frustrating. I mean, I, I went to a school with uh, Jesse Martin, who um, of course was in Law and Order, and uh, he um, also did the biopic for um, Marvin Gaye, and uh, Chandra Wilson, who of course uh, was in um, oh what is that um. You know, I hardly watch uh, TV anymore. Um, it's the medical thing. Um, it, uh, it, it escapes me right now. But And also Philip Seymour Hoffman. So I've seen a lot of my classmates, you know, move on to great things. And I'm like, Ugh, you know, what am I doing? Actually, I'm, I don't feel that bad. So hopefully you don't feel that bad. Well, that, you know, I'm, you never... I'm in awe. PSH, <laughs> huh? Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's impressive company. He used to call me Burger King because I used to go to Burger King all the time. <laughs> the days at NYU. It's, kinda, it's, it's very sad. I mean, you see flashes of greatness and then people you know they die way too soon and then you know there are folks who just keep going on and going on we yeah. were talking about betty white yeah uh, off, yeah. off uh, the mic right and uh you were talking about you know she must have a great agent well it takes it also takes great talent but she's her career has morphed through the years it sure has you know uh reg i first got acquainted with betty white when i was watching 1950s local tv in la and she did a show with a guy named Al Jarvis, and it was a noon kind of cook time housewife show. Mm-hmm. And she was amazing. And that was back in 1951, 52. Yeah. So this lady, she's been there. And <laughs> yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, she got a, um, I think it was that Snickers commercial where, you know, she sort of revived her career and all of that stuff. But I'm just noticing a lot of folks are getting older. Like, I, I think about Bob Hope. Bob Hope, when he was 100, I mean, he he just looked really, really bad. I mean, it, uh, it was almost um, just... You know, you're just watching the clock, you know. I remember right. uh, the in National Enquirer would have all these things like, you know, when is, is he going to die soon and all that stuff. But nowadays, I mean, William Shatner is 80, I think in his mid-80s right now, doesn't look at it, look it at all. You have Betty White, who's having a fantastic career. Um, I think of Tony Tony Bennett, who I think is 90 <laughs> years old, still singing, you know, still selling out places and can still hit those high notes. So I, I tend to think that uh, people are living older and richer and more fulfilling lives at a longer pace. Yeah. 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 I couldn't agree more. Um, and as long as you can stay vital and interested and get out there and do stuff, that's what keeps you young. It, the trouble is if you just put your feet up and you, or you get out the golf clubs and spend your day at the country club, you know, you're going to lose your perspective. You're going to lose mm-hmm. the things that are important for keeping you alive and going and interesting. Yeah. And I also think theater has a way of sort of keeping you vibrant and alive. I mean, you know, you get a script and, you know, you have to play someone either older or younger or you're just stepping into someone else's feet and all of a sudden you're revived. You have to get off book. You have these schedules. You're meeting within. It's funny. Um, I, I'm getting of the age where, I mean, I'm 48 years old now. I don't feel it. But I was on stage with a, a group of uh, young folks. It was at Bindlestiff Studios. It was, it's a wonderful uh, Philippine company. And they had a rotary phone on stage. And I said to myself after a while, none of these folks have ever used that rotary phone before. <laughs> but me, I remember it. <laughs> so you gave them a, a run through on how to... No, I'd ask him, I was like, has any of you guys ever used that? I mean, have you, do you guys remember that in your youth? I'm like, no, we've all had cell phones. I mean, now there's an age, there's a whole generation of folks who have always had the internet, who has always had a cell phone, who's never had to memorize a phone number. It's amazing how times have changed. Yeah, I was reminded of that too, and the expression of the way things are handled in the old days, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. by watching a movie called All the President's Men. In which Robert Redford yeah. and uh, his his partner, yeah, Dustin Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman yeah, yeah, went, yeah. went after the uh, Nixon uh, uh, scandal. Yeah, and they didn't have they didn't have a computer. That's right. They 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 didn't have an iPhone. Can you imagine living without an iPhone? Yeah, and running a, a story. You know, you just that's right. Yeah, you know, without going on the internet, checking things or whatever. Like you know, in my job at the DA's office, there are all sorts of databases and stuff. I mean, I don't know how law enforcement worked without even being able to do a background check and all of that stuff. Uh-huh. They had to look a guy up in that movie. Uh, they had a name, so they knew he was somewhere in New England. They got phone books from mm-hmm. every wow. damn city <laughs> and had to leaf through all those phone yeah. books to find wow. the guy. Yeah. Oh, man, it's a new world, Reg. It's a brand it really new is. world. How was life in, I mean, when you think about California, you talk about growing up in California, Southern California, L.A., in the 1940s and 50s. I think about L.A. Confidential. That's a wonderful movie where it sort of talks about the old days of Hollywood and uh, it even gets into sort of gumshoe, um, um, basically, uh, um, it's it's like a police procedural, but back in the 40s, back when, you know, Kevin Bacon was a star and, you know, before he was outed (laughs) for uh, doing all sorts of uh, dirty things. But how was California back in the old days? I mean, you've seen a lot of changes uh, oh, Jesus, yeah, 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 a lot of changes. When I was a kid, uh, we lived on uh, Crenshaw Boulevard right off of Wilshire in, in the heart of uh, the Wilshire district. And I was like six, seven, eight years old, and I had a, my good friend Peter Sullivan and I, we'd want to go to the movies on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, my dad would give us a quarter, and we'd walk to the movie house over on Western. Mm. Uh, nobody had to escort us. Nobody had to make sure we'd be safe. Nobody worried about us. Yeah. Just be home by cer- certain time, you know? Yeah. So L.A. was was a, uh, was a city that really hadn't found out yet what it was. Interesting. And yeah. we always lived in L.A. <clears throat> in the shadow of San Francisco. That's mm-hmm. where... All of the culture was. That's where all the money was. The banks, etc. Is that right? San Francisco back then. San Francisco was a big deal. Wow. Um, my father, as a treaty, would put us on the train, and my mother would put on her gloves and her hat, and he would get his suit on, and all of us, my me and my younger brother Dan, we would uh, tag along and we would take the train up to San Francisco, 
And it was the most exciting experience wow. because that city, San Francisco at that time, yeah. was just it, – it was like uh, a Humphrey Bogart movie, Maltese Falcon, the same kind of fog would roll in over the bay, you know, <laughs> yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, so L.A. always lived in the shadow of some other city, be it New York or mm -hmm. San Francisco. And so it was a quiet little town in a way. It was – was you know a lot of people around it, yeah, and a moderate amount of traffic. But my father would take the the streetcar to work downtown L.A. and he would walk home and at night. And there was there was never a feeling of, of crime or danger in in the L.A. I lived in yeah. at that age. Yeah, I mean I, I read stories about the zoot suit fights that happened back then, and maybe there was a little bit of. A little bit of corruption, uh, you know, I don't know, mobsters or, or what have you, but certainly not the, uh, the, the gang violence, like the Crips and yeah, the Bloods. No, no, and, no, yeah. yeah. The, the Zoot Suiters, of course, yeah, that was, that was a, a passing thing that uh, was really unfortunate. My brother, Dan, gave me a book that he came across. He, my brother was uh, principal of a school in mm -hmm. South Central L.A., <coughs> And uh, he came across a book about uh, South Central L.A. back in the 40s and 50s. And the black community was so vibrant, so alive. But, you know, it, like so many cities, there was that thing where the whites went and the blacks went. Mm -hmm. And I was just intrigued. I must share it with you sometime. Yeah. I, because I'd love to write a play or have something come out of it that would ex extol that, that area of L.A. that so people, so many people don't know about. Um because it was very vital. The, was, the it was, it, was it integrated? No, no, it wasn't. Segre it, it, it was still segregated. It was, it was, yeah. L.A. was terrible that way. Yeah. L.A. was very, very segregated. And, uh, and no, it was a topic nobody talked about because it wasn't a topic anybody had brought up. Yeah. Um, which I guess is tautologically speaking. Sure. If they didn't bring it up, nobody talked about it. And right. So it wasn't in the papers or anything like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was um, it was always... Uh, interesting to read about the the other aspects, the other sides of L.A. Mm -hmm. from that time. Yeah. Now, you have a brother. Any other siblings? How, how big was your family? Oh, um, my they have five boys. Okay. Uh, three, three older boys have passed on. And my younger brother, Dan, lives in uh, Alhambra down in L.A. with his wife, Carol. And uh, we continue to stay in close touch. Oh, nice. Now, were you the only one involved in theater? I don't know if you, Dan. Yeah, involved. yeah, I was the only one. Uh, although Dan did go to Hollywood High and met all kinds of movie stars, <laughs> sons and daughters. He, mm -hmm. he never really uh, did much theater. When I was at Stanford, my roommate was directing uh, Meet Me in St. Louis, and he wow. cast my, my younger brother Dan mm -hmm. in the role of, uh, I forget what it was exactly, but that was his only experience. This is the same Meet Me in St. Louis with Judy Garland and yeah, th yeah. this is a, a variation that for the for the stage. Oh, oh uh, got it, got it. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, think about L.A. I mean, you know, the the well, California itself is is fascinating because it's it's the same California that created Richard Nixon, but it's the same California that created Jerry Brown and even his father, you know, Edmund Jean Brown. Yeah. Um, it's the same that created a Ronald Reagan, but it's the same that created, um, you know, the, the liberal movement like Diane Feinstein and, um, and, um, you know, some, and Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. Right yeah, yeah. I was going to say her name. She's amazing. <clears throat> and look at the mix. Kamala Harris has got the, the, the blood of an Indian, the blood of a, you know, she just, That's right. she's the kind of variation on the theme that you see in California now. And, yeah. Uh, but but po politically wise, I mean, you've sort of seen it through the years where once upon a time it was red and then, you know, it's become blue. And I mean, um, <clears throat> do you what do you think about the dynamics of, I guess, uh, California? I mean, you've you sort of seen it through the years. Like, yeah. uh, you know, once upon a time, Nixon was just, you know, coming from World War Two. Yeah. As just, uh, you know, from the Navy, really not doing much of anything. And all of a sudden he becomes a, a, a member of House of Representatives and then he becomes a senator. Then you have the Alger Hiss. Hearings. Yeah, um, yeah. And then Nixon did it because of red baiting. Let's face it. That's right. He he went after uh, 
the uh, Melvin Douglas's wife, who was a uh, yeah Hel- Helen Helen Gahagan Douglas, right? Uh, yeah, her. Yeah, and and through through lies and distortion, he was able to defeat her in an election. Yeah, and it was just upward and onward for him after that because he knew what the secret was that people were scared. Yeah. in the fifties, and that's what worries me about the present day. People are scared, exactly, and they'll do stupid things. And yeah. Yeah, Put stupid people in office. Right, and, just, and I was g- just going to say, it sounds to me that's that was the evolution of the politics of fear. Yes, because the Republican Party really had a hard time getting people elected because, yeah. you know, you had FDR and the New Deal, and everyone loved FDR. Exactly. My father, we <coughs> used to, uh, when I was a little kid, little little kid, and in the thirty nine, forty, forties, we would sit by the radio and listen to. The fireside chats. Is that right? You listen yeah. to FDR. Oh yeah, wow. I listen, and, 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 yeah. You know, I was like four or five years old at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my father and my mother were very, very staunch Democrats and very much in favor of FDR. Yeah, yeah. Well, the New Deal. I mean, it, it helped. It, you know, it saved people out of depression. Uh, of course, you know the war. Now, how old were you during uh, World War Two? I mean, were you just a little kid? I, I, yeah, I was in grammar school at the time and. It was a scary time that I recall because we were under siege from uh, what we expected to be an invasion at any time, that we were going to be treated to the same surprises that they had in Hawaii. Yeah. And so we had drills Mm. at school, and um, there was the bombardment off of Long Beach one night where you could hear the boom of the of the cannon. So it was it was really scary, and it was such a relief when that was all passed. Because you you live under that constant feeling that something terrible is going to happen, yeah. Uh, that didn't return until the fifties, and it you know we had our own. Yeah, scares. yeah, that's right. That's right. The Red Scare, you know, whether well, the Red Scare and all the also the atom bomb. Uh, that's right. Yeah, we had those tests. You're too young, for perhaps, to have gone through that. Yeah, but again, you had the the sirens that go off at noon every day, mm-hmm. and everybody had to take cover, and it was just a, the fifties were. A horrible time uh, during that that uh, yeah. Cold War. And isn't it amazing when people look at, especially when they look at TV or let's say let's say old YouTube video of I don't know, like a television show in the fifties, you see something idyllic like the Andy Griffith Show or yeah. the Dick Van Dyke Show or yeah. uh, Make Room for Daddy, and you think, oh wow, the fifties were wonderful. Or you look at Mad Men, <laughs> which uh, you yeah. know gives you a dystopian version of you know like uh, the privileged white guy yeah. who has his hat on and he's going right. to an ad agency, right? And uh, you know. There's a liquor cabinet in his office and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. But in, in L.A., you know, it was different. You remember, uh, uh, I remember Mad Men the same way. Yeah. Showing that uh, that division, the, the white, privileged white class. But in L.A., my father, as I said earlier, was wound up being an inventor. Mm-hmm. And who his partner was a black guy. Oh, wow. And uh, his uh, closest business associate was Jewish. Wow. And so we would go over to the Goldstein's and we would have dinner or go to a Seder there, you know, Yeah. when I was just a little kid. And it was just that kind of mix. Yeah. Um, but uh, that was uh, L.A. in a, in a special time yeah. in a special way from my own personal sure. experience. Sure. So, yeah. what, did, what did your dad invent? I mean, uh, is it? It was called a lumber drying process. It, it never really got anywhere uh it was uh, a way of immersing uh lumber in in an oil that then would preserve it so that it wouldn't chip or yeah. or crack and uh it was uh, the the market was supposed to be the warehouse of people or georgia pacific but uh it, it, there were too many misadventures with it sure so yeah no, there were a lot of inventions. Uh, it's, it's interesting. One of the byproducts of war is that, you know, you have these great inventions happening immediately after World War II. You have, like, um, tape, like, you know, like uh, like re- recording tape, like 3M. I think a lot of it we stole from Nazi Germany. Uh, the space race happened immediately after World War II because, you know, we took the V-2 rocket and, you know, that propelled, you know, the space race and NASA. You know, NASA was created during that time. Sure, sure. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, the transistor, you know, that was the beginning of um, of uh, computers. And, you know, when I was uh, getting my master's at Stanford in radio, TV, and film, mm-hmm. we would go on location and we would carry these big, this is 1960, mm-hmm. these big, bulky, reel-to-reel babies. Yeah. Lug them onto the, we did a, a show, me and my uh, buddy, 
uh, at a racetrack, and uh-huh. we wanted to get the sound of the cars and interview the drivers and all. Yeah. And lugging that darn heavy reel to reel from wow. place to place. Yeah. The transistors were a miracle <laughs> thing. It yeah. just made it all yeah. so so mm-hmm. better. Yeah, and I think about you know like uh, young teenagers uh, instead of listening to the radio. Where you know you had to listen to what Dad was listening to. All of a sudden, you have the transistor radio, so now you can carry it in your room exactly. and listen to Elvis Presley, whatever. Like rock and roll. I mean, were you affected by uh, rock and roll and that whole transition? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I am like most gay people. I am in love with musical theater, uh-huh. and so that was what I would yeah. concentrate on. And that it was a revival in the fifties too. Like I think you had Very Oklahoma. You collect all the albums. You get together with your friends, and you would memorize the lyrics from shows. Mm-hmm. Oklahoma, Pipe Dream, mm-hmm. King and I. I mean, it all became part of your lore. Sure. Man of La Mancha, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that was a little bit later, but okay, yeah, yeah, the same deal. Yeah, right. yeah. And I think Sondheim came right around that time, or maybe the late 50s. He's a contemporary. Yeah. He, he's my age, you know. Yeah. So he, was, uh, he didn't really start getting it out there until... Uh, 1960s, mid-60s. Yeah, I want to think about uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. I think also, um, what is it, Um, the the Romeo and Juliet thing, uh, West Side Story. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you ever do musical theater? I don't know if you sang. Uh, Yeah, I've done, uh, I did Carousel. Mm -hmm. I played the second angel from the left when I was getting my undergraduate degree at Oregon. Mm -hmm. And... uh, and right now, at this time, I'm a member of a singing group. Is that right? Uh, at, called wow. Stage Bridge down yeah. here in, in Oakland. Yeah. Where every Thursday, a bunch of us get together, and each of us, and it isn't like a group sing. We don't mm-hmm. do Gumbaya stuff. Sure. Each of us is required to come with a song. Yeah. A cabaret, usually a cabaret number of some yeah. sort. And we develop it over the course of a six-week or uh-huh. two-month uh, session. Oh, nice. And so, Are audience members allowed to come? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's going to be a, a workshop for sta- uh, Stage Bridge this coming Thursday uh-huh. uh, for the singing group. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're at the Unitarian Church at the corner of uh, Harrison and Grand. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll plug that. Okay. So people can uh, come, to s- come see you in action. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's run by a marvelous, marvelous, talented guy named Scrumley Caldwin. And Scrumley has done a lot of theater work and musical work. Here, both in the Bay Area and uh, New York. And he's the guy who sits at the piano and guides us through the mm-hmm. realization of our interpretation yeah. of each particular song. Yeah. Speaking of piano players, uh, you probably heard that Rod Dibble had passed away. He, oh, uh, man, he was marvelous. It's so sad that uh, yeah. he's no longer with us. Yeah, yeah. So you did actually, you've, you've been there too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the Alley, I That's think. That's right, the called. Alley. That's right. Yeah, uh, more than one occasion, I my niece who lives up in Montclair, mm-hmm. uh, Cindy, we would meet and go to the alley and sit around the piano and mm-hmm. sing songs with Ron. Yeah, I used to love that. Yeah, the original piano man, or at least the piano man here in the Bay Area. Absolutely. Yeah, you know those days. I was talking to a um, a friend of mine. Actually, it was yesterday. We were, we were lamenting. So um, I play a little bit of guitar, and a lot of guitar. Uh, companies like Gibson and Taylor and Gretsch and uh, a couple of others, yeah. they're they're not having good business because a lot of folks just don't buy or play guitars anymore or even play the piano. I mean, the music industry is so based on samples and uh, digital stuff that um, young kids just don't learn how to play the piano anymore or the guitar. It's kind of sad. So there's no more garage uh, trash bands? Or <laughs> well, I'm sure there are, but I guess not far and few in between. I think more more kids are, you know, like they're doing the DA, the digital audio workstations where, you know, like Cubase and um, oh, don't even Pro tell Tools me. or whatever. I, you are so past <laughs> yeah, where I, know. I am. <laughs> right. I don't understand any of that, and I don't participate in it. So. Sure. And, you know, and you've seen, like you and I, we were talking about the transition from, um, like, you know, in the 70s, you know, there was FM radio. A lot of people don't even realize that there was no FM radio prior to uh, the 70s. Yeah. Uh, my dad used to, uh, had told me that, you know, the minute the, the FM radio came, yeah. you had a whole proliferation of music that no one had ever listened to. Yeah, there's a story behind that. I, I can't quite recall what it is. Why AM triumphed over FM and yeah. why the people well, one way or the <coughs> other? A little bit that I know. The FCC, uh, basically um, RCA, I think, yeah. not only had – their own record label, but they also created the the actual radios, 
and they yeah. had a, they had a monopoly, and so I think. And to prevent anyone else from, you know, gaining the monopoly, they only made the radios, and the radios were only physically able to reach a certain frequency. I think the frequency stopped at 680. I think that was the highest frequency you can get for AM. I think, yeah, at 16, yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of other radio companies that wanted to sort of get in to break this monopoly had petitioned the FCC, hey, we want to get in the action. You know, can you, cre- can you allow us to use the, f- the higher frequency so that we can make radios and we can make a sale? And for a long time, they just said, no, 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 we're not going to do it until the 70s. I don't know what was going on in the Nixon administration, but, you know, apparently FCC said yes. And all of a sudden that just broke out, you know, a whole not only hardware radios could be sold, but also radio stations that, you know, actually pumped in FM radio that was created. And, of course, it revolutionized the, uh, the recording studio. So now bands. All sorts of bands can get on the radio. You know, you heard all sorts of stuff like uh, The Last Poets and the Electric Light Orchestra. Yeah. And um, I think of Pink Floyd, you know. And you oh, have sure. these, these concept albums where, you know, you don't, didn't have the three-minute song anymore. But now you had, you know, vast compositions. Yeah, yeah. And you could just, you know. And some of the Beatles, some of their work. That, uh, that's right. That's right. That's very right. Very example of that. So I think, you know, that's my interpretation. And I, I love history. And so... There's one full documentary history of rock and roll that sort of talks about that. Uh-huh. So, um, but let's talk about, so, n- and getting into the 70s, when did you, when did you migrate into the Bay Area, and when did you start, when did you first get on stage? Uh, got out here in, let's see, 1980. I moved out, in, okay. I moved actually into the Bay Area. I was transferred here by my company, mm-hmm. and uh, at that time, I was on my own. I was divorced, looking around, and uh, found a group called uh, EastEnders Rep. Wow. And EastEnders was the entree mm-hmm. uh, to a decade or more of uh, theater activity for me, not just with them, mm-hmm. but I, uh, I met some wonderful people in the Bay Area theater community and had some wonderful opportunities with uh, – uh, many many theaters here. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, excuse me. EastEnders, you know, means a lot to me as well. That's why I keep on bringing these ex EastEnders. Exactly. That's how you and I met, after all. That that's exactly right. Um, what was what was the Bay Area like? I guess in the eighties. You know, we've had a lot of other folks talk about it, like Cecilia Maurice. You know, she talked about coming here uh, from England and you know getting into EastEnders and and um, but also just there were a lot of companies that were around that aren't around anymore. But what was the Bay Area in the 80s like? It was very vital, mm-hmm. as I recall. Although I really didn't become fixed in the community until 1990. Mm-hmm. The 80s, I was uh, in uh, Minnesota and doing theater work back there at that okay. time. What brought you to Minnesota? Oh, a long <laughs> story. Do we have about three or four years? And I could tell, <laughs> tell you that story because I've hopped around a lot. Sure, sure. I... Uh, I, I, after I graduated from Stanford, yeah. I got a, 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 a job with NBC News, and oh, wow. I was with them uh-huh. for a while. And then a friend of mine invited me to Venezuela, mm-hmm. where he was teaching, and, he, and I went down to Venezuela. Wow. Mm-hmm. I met the woman of my life, married her, mm-hmm. and uh, came back to Texas, and uh, then moved with, uh, with Sandra to Minnesota and spent a few years up there and then uh, the wedding uh, the marriage you know evaporated and mm-hmm. so I wound up back out uh, in California in San Francisco so it was uh, hopping around for about uh, two or three decades there but then it finally got into San Francisco in the 90s and I was just getting the residue of whatever was left over from the 80s in San Francisco uh, so it, it was uh, it was just as well because I escaped the the dread of the AIDS epidemic and all during that period of time, right. having not been here then. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I really can't talk much about what San Francisco was like in the eighties because I wasn't here then. Sure, no, I understand. Yeah, we had John Fisher, and of course, John Fisher is the uh, he's the executive director of um, of. Oh shucks, Theodore Rhinoceros, and he talked about uh, being here in the eighties. Oh, I worked for John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think we did an East Enders production uh, in, co- in collaboration with Theodore Rhino. That's uh, right. Hundred Years of Queer Theater. 
Um, and he talked about how his partner uh, had passed away um, from AIDS, and, you know, just uh, how horrible the AIDS epidemic uh, was. Sure, sure. Um, but, um, I mean, hearing about, you know, you going to Venezuela and, you know, he, and then Minnesota, whatever, there's always been a very Hemingway um, vibe about you, John. I mean, I've always, I've always thought of you as being, you know, sort of a, the, the gay Hemingway <laughs> as a compliment. <laughs> I'll have to give up all my guns then. Anyway, yeah, and, and, and speaking of theater, while I was in Venezuela, yeah. I, got involved, I got involved with a bilingual theater group, mm -hmm. uh, and we did something called Lanciana Millionaria, which uh -huh. is about the, the uh, millionaire old lady. I forget how you would yeah. directly translate that. So that, that was a, a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. And then when I was in Texas, I did some theater work there as well and uh, wrote some stuff. So uh, although I've hopped around from a lot of places, I've always tried to, to lock into something. In Minnesota, I had a wonderful job uh, working for a theater called the Olympic, mm -hmm. and uh, we did a piece that was produced. This, you won't believe this. We were, uh, we were in a space, a working space in Minnesota, mm -hmm. in Minneapolis, yeah. where we put on a play that ran every night of the week for a full month. Wow. I, no breaks. This, this, this guy it was just incredible. Uh -huh. um, his name escapes me right now. Yeah. But he had gotten a grant, and, and he was going to do the story of Lenz, L-E-N-Z. Lenz was a poet of the German res Revolution, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Renaissance in, yeah. in the 19th century. And this this was just an extremely interesting experience. Mm -hmm. Night after night after night for a full month. And it was, I still have some pictures of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a wonderful experience. Wow. I want to talk about your writing because I remember, you know, an EastEnders not only did productions, but it also helped writers. You know, Chuck Polly, the late Chuck Polly, he had a writer's group. And I think you and I are part of the writer's group. And He was he, marvelous. Yeah, Chuck was Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think about Chuck all mind. the time. Um, but you had some, you had some really, really good writers. I think you had, you brought in uh, a couple of pieces. I still remember some of those pieces. Uh, yeah, probably the earliest thing I remember that I had some a little success with was a play I wrote when I was at Stanford called Ticket for the Peep Show mm -hmm. that uh, got a Westinghouse uh, Corporation uh, uh, place uh, oh, nice. of, of recognition, mm -hmm. and uh, but it was. Uh, Working with Chuck, that I was able to get a lot of my stuff up uh, on the boards, and that that was wonderful. Yeah, I think you had one piece that actually dealt with. Um, it may have been the millionaire uh, piece uh, uh -huh. <clears throat> dealing with. Uh, I'm I'm trying to. It's it's been a long time. Yeah, it but is. but it but it dealt with you know <laughs> Latino themes. Yeah, and. Um, uh, and migrant themes as well. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, what do you think? It, about, it, that was probably. That might have been Ticket for the Peep Show because it takes place uh, – it's kind of a variation on Petrified Forest where the um, Mexican uh, woman who runs – who sweeps up the floors of the cafe uh, encounters various people and has various experiences. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. no I, uh, like I said, I do remember it. Um, what do you think about what's happening now? You know, when, when I hear about, uh, you know, you had obviously you have a great connection with, you know, the Latino community from your experience in Venezuela and you know, also your writings. What do you think about the ice sweeps? You know, um, immigration and naturalization just, you know, just it reminds me so much of Crystal Knock of, of just. Oh, man, you're reading my mind. Yeah. I was reading today's paper about uh, what's going on with the ice sweeps here in the Bay Area. And the very same thing occurred to me, the fear these folks live under. I wonder how closely that parallels the fear the Jews felt yeah. during the Holocaust. Yep. It was uh, chilling to read some of the stories of these fellows and women who were being swept up yeah. and taken from their families without any recourse or yeah. whatever. And not because of a real threat, but because of really propaganda. No, absolutely propaganda. no threat at all. Yeah. No. no, but uh, it, the, we live in an era of uh, populism, is that what it's called? Where, yeah, I guess where, so. Where, where people are just so scared of the foreigner yeah. that they'll go to these extremes. Yeah. And, I, you know, I applaud what Libby Schaaf did, our mayor here in That's Oakland. right, that's right. She, she, it took a lot of guts. Mm -hmm. She's not happy. 
I mean, a lot of people aren't happy with her, but yeah. I'm sorry. That's that's the way a true elected official protects their people is the way that she's handling this. Abs- absolutely. I totally agree. It's, it's a rape of the community uh, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Did it surprise you that uh, Trump got elected? I mean, I remember uh, I was in a writing class with uh, Gary Graves, um, who runs uh, Central Works, but he also has a theater, uh, a writing class. And I remember that Tuesday, I was like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, usually, you know, the red states come in first, but, you know, um, Hillary will win. And all of a sudden, boom, it happens. And I was just in a state state of shock. Did it shock you? Oh, man, I sat up in bed because I've been doing the tracking in, while I was in bed. Yeah. Just I was absolutely speechless. First there was a squeak of, oh, my God. Yeah. And then I was just, I couldn't say, I couldn't speak. Yeah. I mean, what, what does this mean? Yeah. And now we're finding out what it means. Right, right. You think that the history can't repeat itself like, oh, we will never have, you know, um, you know, a, a sort of an authoritarian or whatever, or um, our civil rights could never be violated. You know, nothing like that could happen in the United States. To think that an entertainer yeah. with no experience in government mm-hmm. and, and no uh, love of or knowledge of history yeah. could be elected by the people. But, you know, uh, you know, I was, the last time I was invited by you to be on the show, I couldn't be here because I was in Texas. That's yeah. where a good friend of mine lives now in Dallas. Right. Yeah. And when you think that Trump's got uh, a, a, narrow, a small base that doesn't make any difference, sure. you go to a state like Texas and you see how firmly in place he is. Oh, God. He is respected yeah. and loved and you don't say anything. Mm-hmm. My friend says, and when we're in the restaurant or going out, keep your mouth shut. You're not wow. in Oakland yeah. because you're just going to rile people up. Mm. So he has he's triggered yeah. an aspect of our uh uncivilized society that that is frightening truly frightening yeah and and a lot of people i guess if you do live in a bubble like san francisco um you yeah. don't you don't see what's happening outside because i'm i was very shocked that there were people who so firmly connected with the alt-right i mean as far as being republican i mean there are moderate republicans once upon a time there used to be a rockefeller republican you know the republican that only concerned only concerned itself about Fiscal responsibility. Right, right. They didn't care yeah. if you were gay. They didn't care, you know, if. No, no, right. that, that wasn't part of the agenda at all. Yeah. And they did not pay. Any, they they would never allow this sort of deficit we're facing right now with the tax mm-hmm. uh, boondoggle that the uh, Republicans have put into place. Sure. Or that, even the tariffs. The tariffs. And the tariffs, my right God, right yeah. That, that the tariffs that are granted and uh, allowed to occur, Reg. Uh, by a flip of the coin. I mean, the yeah. guy walks in the room and says, and people ask him, well, how much are the tariffs going to be? He doesn't consult anybody. He doesn't talk to any uh, right. panels. Yeah. He hasn't read any articles on what the impact of tariffs is. Right. He, he says, okay, what we're going to do 15 are. for steel and 10 for aluminum. Yeah. I heard, was, I heard it was 25 for steel. Uh, 25 for steel. Yeah, which is horrible. Yeah. 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 Now, I was, re- I was reading. Yeah, I was reading. Um, I think it was Jerome uh, Gentes um, on Facebook, and he basically says, you know, I think Trump quoted William McKinley as a reference to the tariffs and how tariffs were good. And I was like, well, if I remember history correctly, because I'm a bit of a history buff, the McKinley tariff created the uh, uh, financial panic in 1893, and it actually killed Benjamin Harrison's uh, presidency. Yeah. Yeah. And it brought back in uh, Grover Cleveland. And help me with this, since you're a, a <laughs> student of history. Yeah. Wasn't it Smoot Hawley or something like that in the 30s? I forget. That's the, right. The, the tariff that uh, came along and triggered the Depression. Right. That's exactly right. And, of course, we were also buying um, stocks on margin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, give me the stock. I'll, I'll pay you next week. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, everyone's looking at the books, and I was like, wait a minute, there's no real money here. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And uh, the Great Depression. Your family was was your, was your family affected by the Great Depression? I know you were born after that. Uh, I was born in the middle of it in 1936, uh, yeah. in the heart of the Depression. And my father was a custom house broker whose job was clearing uh, ships at the harbor and that, uh, writing bills of lading. So it, it kind of passed us over. We didn't really feel uh, any negative impacts. Yeah. But he was very much a pro uh, FDR. And, yeah. Uh, and supportive of all those bills yeah. as they came through. I remember my uh, I heard stories of my granddad. They uh, they didn't trust the banks, so they would keep the money in their um, 
in their mattresses. Now, this is interesting you bring this up because that's one thing that happened to my father. Yeah. He did not trust banks yeah. after the Depression. Yeah. He cautioned me away from it. He says, if you've got to do business, do it with a credit union or keep it in, in right. your mattress. Because that's right. banks are run by crooks. <laughs> right. And now... Do you feel that way now? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I feel that way now. Yeah. yeah. So are you doing any current writing now? Uh, are you... Um, no, man, it's 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 memoirs time, if anything, where yeah. I'm trying to put together some sort of a recollection of the last, uh, my experience of the last 80 years, wherever it's worth to anybody yeah. to, to oh, see the flow of the years. Yeah. And, and I don't know if I want to express it in terms of a play, because I love to write plays, mm -hmm. love dialogue, love the, the things that people say to each other. Yeah. Uh, or put it in prose form, I don't know. But, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's kicking around. Yeah. When you went to school... What type of techniques did you learn? Like when I went to school, you know, we learned method acting, but there was also the experimental theater wing. There was also like um, they like uh, Strasberg has a method. Um, did you did you pick up any sort of methods or techniques? Uh, my real theater training as an undergraduate was at the University of Oregon with a fellow named Horace Robinson. In fact, they named the theater after him after he passed away. And Mr. Robinson would take us aside. Uh, and he would express his interest in the play. He would never bring to it any kind of a theory or school mm -hmm. uh, or influence that way because yeah. he would always say, what I want you to do now mm -hmm. that I've cast you in this play is read the play, mm -hmm. figure out what that person is up to, mm -hmm. and figure out how you're going to make us understand that that person is doing. So it's a very pragmatic thing. Yeah, yeah. Nothing... Nothing magical like what – well, I, I guess it wasn't magical. There was some value to it, the sort of thing that Marlon Brando went through with the Strasbourg School yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Did you have any training like that? A little bit. There's sense memory. I mean, basically, I think all of the training was more so about keep the fourth wall, you know, keep focused. It was all about, you know, yeah. don't let your mind wander, you know, focus on the play or whatever. Exactly. Like, like beats, like, you know, what beats are, you know, where the emotional, you know, trajectory. Like, we would do exercises like um, – you know, you're going to do the scene, you're going to fix an egg sandwich. And uh, you're going to have to, you know, like even fry the egg and, and, you know, find the, you know, and if you can't find a fork, well, let's say you can't find the the um, the knife, well, that's your objective, find the knife, you know. And if you can't find the objective, it's, 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 it's sort of like if you, if you can't find the objective, that can elicit an emotional response because sometimes there are objectives that you're going for that you can't achieve. Exactly. That, yeah. that frustration. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that what, the barrier. There's some expression they use for that uh, element of, of a play. Mm -hmm. When when I go to a play and I'm in the audience, I'm I'm watching the play in a very special way, and that is, I focus on the people who aren't speaking the lines or directly involved in the scene. Mm -hmm. What are they looking like? That person sitting over there who came in as the maid. Or that one that was introduced earlier as the good friend and is now has no lines, right. but is still on stage. Are they focused? Are they there? Are they still those people? Exactly. But you see Red so often, and, yeah. and unfortunately, very true with uh, amateur companies. They're, they're checking their audience out. They're, they're looking at their oh, nails. They're, yeah. not, they're not really there. Yeah, and that's the, right. And to be present, that's the discipline it takes. Yeah. And one thing I am always feel very good about when I'm complimented it's from people who say, you know, you always are focused on me. You know, the person will say if they were doing a, a scene right, together. Right. You know, I'm with, I'm there. You yeah. Know, you have somebody to work against all the time. Right, exactly. You know, uh, a lot of young actors, you know, need to realize even though you don't have a line, you're still acting. Absolutely. You know, you got to create that world. Exactly. You have to live in that world. Yeah. From the time you step on stage till you leave. Yeah. Did you guys focus, in, like, let's say character development? Let's say you have a character, and the script will give you some character, but, you know, the, it's probably not enough. I mean, did you do any um, sort of, uh, what do they call it, um, like, just like a, 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 what am I trying to say, a, like a um, 
did you let's say if you, let's say you have a minor character and let's say you have to build a life around it. Yeah. Did you have to focus on that at all? Yeah, that, very much so. I, in fact, we were talking earlier about Scott Munson's play. What would Jesus do? That's right. WWJD. And, yeah. And, yeah I, I, I didn't act in it, but and I. You were you were the dramaturg. I'm the dramaturg, and it's one of the things the dramaturg brings to the play. It gives that work the actor mm-hmm. the tool to work with to that kind of exploration. Yeah. To do the exploration that allows the actor to develop the the character that's there on, mm-hmm. on the stage by providing the background, the history, who, where you come from. You right. Know, the, the, uh, yeah, the yeah. background, exactly. Yeah. And for those who don't know, in WWJD, we've actually talked about it. I had Scott on actually a couple of times, and we've talked about WWJD. It's basically about, I think the title person was Alan Greenspan, who basically I think he dropped some acid by accident, and he's wandering around Washington, D.C., but he has to give a speech as to what he's going to do about the economic climate in the United States. And basically he just says, well, you know, let's just give, give the money away. But it's done very the, – the, the style is sort of like a, um, a Shakespearean troupe yeah. uh, um, that travels around. Very expressionistic that way. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. It's not quote-unquote realism. It, it's a, That's it's right. a whole different dimension. Exactly. That's what makes it such a genius yeah. work, I think. Yeah. And I remember that, that great speech where he talks about uh, the the um, the missionary who is in Japan, feudal Japan, and they're going to kill him unless he denounces the name of God. And uh, Scott has this wonderful piece where he's describing, Greenspan is describing how this missionary, I guess he's holding a cross, and the cross is speaking to him and saying, listen, it's okay. You can spit on me. You can whatever. Save your life. Step on me. I was made for this. And it was really a wonderful moment. And Scott and I have talked about this. And we actually, that conversation dealt with faith. And, you know, we sort of got into that. It was one of those moments on podcasting where, you know, we're about to get into a subject matter that, that sort of shocked me or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, what are your views on faith at all? I mean, do you have a belief or anything like that? No, no. I, I walked away from all of that. I hear you. And I find great comfort in not having to carry a lot of extraneous uh, ephemeral guilt around with me yeah. as I did when I was a Catholic. So, no, I'm, I'm an avowed atheist. And Is that right? Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. What about, what about your family? I mean, uh, oh, Roman you? Catholic all the way. Is I was right? raised Roman Catholic. Wow. My mother was, uh, you know, uh-huh. uh, of Irish heritage. Uh-huh. And uh, all of my brothers were, you know, christened, baptized, and uh, otherwise uh, mm-hmm. in the church. Of the five of us, of the five boys, mm-hmm. uh, one stayed "quote unquote" faithful, mm-hmm. and uh, my my younger brother and I uh, pursue our own, you know, sure path. Yeah. So we no, we haven't stayed with that at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's been a lot of ups and downs. I mean, you know, you have uh, controversies within the Catholic Church with you know priests and you know just messing around, and um, I when think I, Francis is doing fantastic. Well, but when when the trigger for me, yeah. if I can sure. tell you, is that uh, when I met uh, the young lady that I had fallen hopelessly in love with uh, and wanted to marry, I uh, went to my parents and they said, well, I'd have to talk to my Jesuit cousin about that. And when I went to my Jesuit cousin, he said that the only way I could marry uh, this woman since she'd been married before, mm-hmm. uh, in a Baptist ceremony, mm. God help us, mm. I would have to petition the Vatican, and then I would have to, you know, pay whatever it takes to get an attorney to appear. I mean, it was so. Oh my God! And I said, "This is the woman I love. I'm, 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 I'm totally uh, convinced that this is the life I want to leave is is mm-hmm. with her." And I went to church every day. I would do novenas. I did the the whole routine, and this is the way the church is coming back at me? Yeah. So then I said, that's it. Yeah. And uh, Sandra and I got in the car and drove down to Long Beach and got married <laughs> in front of a judge <laughs> and lived happily ever after well, for 17 years. Or yeah, years. exactly. And I was going to say, we have a lot of um, – we have listeners who, who are gay, gay, lesbian, um, and, you know – Well, they, they said the Bay Area after yeah, all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how difficult, how easy was your transition, if you want to talk about it, um, to – I mean, the, the realization, hey, this is who I am, and this is how I'm going to live. I think the difficult thing, Reg, is classification and categorization. Yeah. Everybody has to be this, that, or the other. Mm. And uh, it's tough for me to say I'm gay and not recognize also that I've 
was deeply in love with this woman, and we had a very fulfilling marriage all those years. And then, boom, something else happened, and I tried something else for a while. Sure. I suppose if you wanted to classify me, I'd be a bi. I don't know how that would yeah. work out. Well, it, well it's amazing but how these, these – like I, I talk about this with John Fisher, how – Especially in the, the newer age, there are all these other tags like metrosexual and sapiosexual <laughs> and heteroflexible. Heteroflexible? <laughs> you never heard about that? No, no, this is amazing. <laughs> oh, sure. I listen to the Savage Love podcast. And anyone who's listening to a podcast, that's another great podcast. Dan Savage, he's a gay guy, but he gives advice to gay, straights, anyone. Oh, Dan, yeah, Dan Savage, wonderful guy. Yeah, he's a wonderful guy. And, yeah, so heteroflexual, you know, guys who hey, are, That's what he calls himself, heteroflexual? No, 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 not him. But other other folks uh, okay. who are no, I'm straight, but sometimes I like a little dick. Just sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, whatever, whatever. But you're absolutely right. You know, being put into a box. I mean, um, I think people are finding right now, especially in the age of the internet, and that's a wonderful thing about the internet, where people are talking to people from different cultures and different backgrounds, yeah. and they're learning different philosophies and ways of thinking. And now everyone's talking more about their sexuality, and so sexuality has become more fluid. I guess that's the, right. The term and our public culture, you know, yeah. like this wonderful movie called uh, "Call Me by Your Name," is, is just a wonderful example of introducing to the straight world what it means to be young and attracted to a, a, an older fellow who is gay, and how that develops as a love relationship, and mm -hmm. you know the honesty of it, and the history of those kinds of relationships. Uh, so it's it's. Uh, a marvelous film, mm -hmm. and, and I agree with you. The, the day and age we live in is miraculous for that. There's a lot of shit going on. But the openness of our society when it comes to sexuality is, is really wonderful. Yeah. Speaking of technology, when's the first time you used a uh, computer? When's the first time you got online? Uh, I can't remember the name of the computer. It was a little box in a – like in a – it had a handle in it, and you could carry it around. Commodore was that the name of it? Maybe one. Maybe. Commodore back. It was. A, let's see. I was living in. Um, I was living in Minneapolis at the time with uh, with Sandra, and she was the one who first went to to computers because she's very scientific minded mm -hmm. that way. And so it was. Uh, it was a Commodore. It was running uh, a program that was extremely awkward. But it was. This was like nineteen. Oh. 64. Wow. That sort of thing. It could have been the pet. could have been the Commodore pet. It's, it sounds like it was you, not you the 64. You could put like in a, in a suitcase like thing with a handle on it. Wow. And you could carry it around. Yeah. Portable, but I'm sure it was heavier but than the other space portable. Man, the software, the software is incredibly difficult. Yeah. To go into a program and to get back out, you had to retrace your steps. You know, if you're going to do this key, that key, that the other key, okay, I want to go back and get out. You have to go this key, that key, the other key to get out. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, and the interesting thing, Ridge, is that mm -hmm. I actually wound up in the computer field. Yeah. I, I sold and supported computers in the international area for a company in Minnesota. Yeah. And learned more about computers than I could probably ever use. Mm -hmm. It was just at the time of ASCII. Yeah. And it was just at the time that um, – that uh, the uh, Mac was, was coming out. Oh, yeah, that's And right. my job was to go to distributors of our product uh, and tell them how do you sell against that awful thing called a Mac. Mm -hmm. It'll never last. It's yeah. terrible. It's a yeah. piece of garbage. <laughs> and so that was my job. Sure. Um, but, of course, you know, the Mac prevailed anyway. <laughs> they prevailed, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember my, uh, my mom, and, uh, you know, she was a black woman uh, in the mid-'80s, who was um, in, in Washington, D.C., and actually D.C. was a wonderful place to grow up being black because, you know, pretty much everyone in the community was black, and you can sort of move up and get a lot of great federal government jobs. And so I got to learn how to use, like, the Wang computer in oh, the yeah. 80s. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was one of our competitors as well because I was selling mm -hmm. a, de a dedicated word processor called a CPT, Yeah, and, and Wang was our big competitor. Right, and Wang lasted for a little bit. I mean, it was during that time there. You had a lot of little, like I think Amiga had a, they did a computer. Even yeah. Atari had their own little but computers. But Wang, Wang was, these were the guys who were setting the rules right. when it came to word processing. Right, and they were selling to the corporate market. I think Absolutely. IBM hadn't quite you know, gotten their bearings. And then IBM came in and sort of, you know, wiped everyone out. Of course, they hooked up with Bill Gates and we know the rest of the story, Windows. You know, oh, yeah. Well, what can you do when you're selling <laughs> a product that runs 
by inserting an eight-inch floppy disk to get it to run. You right. know, that was my product. Yeah. And all of a sudden, what happened to the eight-inch floppy disk? That's gone. Right. That's exactly right. So it, yeah. It went from the floppy to uh, the CD to... Bill, Ga- Bill Gates, you yeah. know, thank you very much, Bill. You <laughs> made me a poor man, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, between Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and, well, I mean... You, oh, it's you, a whole different story. That yeah. And Wozniak and, and now, you know, there uh, it's funny, there's a, um, there was a young person I was talking to, and um, I, was talk- I, I, I was sending her a, a document, and she was like, so... Basically, to make a long story short, she doesn't even use a computer anymore. She does everything on her phone. Uh-oh. And she's, like, in her mid-20s. And I'm like, so how do you de- how do you save your stuff, and how do you type? And I was like, well, no, it's just all here. And I'm like, okay, it's a whole new world. I mean, you yeah. know, laptops, you know, people uh, – as a matter of fact, Apple is having a hard time selling laptops now because um, basically the major market are the phones. That's right. That market's fallen off, hasn't it? I think yeah. I read that somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Cheapers. So it's it's a whole new uh, world. And I was about to buy one. Uh, too late now. <laughs> well, you can get them cheap now. It's just that uh, if it ever breaks, I, I just don't know. You know, they've become a disposable good, you know. Yeah. Like, you know, that's another thing that has sort of fallen by the wayside. Like, you can go to a hardware store. I mean, not a hardware store, but like a television repair store back in the day. Those days are gone, you know. There's Absolutely. no television repair stores. There's no typewriter repair stores nope. or nope. the repair stores. You know, uh, now the hardware is now a disposable good. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Goes out with the garbage. Right, right, exactly. And then you just go buy another one. So we're hitting close to the uh, one-hour mark. My goodness, our time flies. <laughs> Did you have a good time? Oh, wonderful time. Thank you, Rez. This has been great. Yeah. I wanted to ask, are you, are you, are you itching to get back on stage? I don't think I could do what I need to do anymore physically on stage. Okay. Uh, John Fisher put me through my last paces with the piece that we did. And I found out, man, I couldn't turn like I used to turn. Mm. And I can't work in blackouts like, like oh, I used to. Oh, I In hear fact, you. I walked off the apron of a stage one night Ooh. because I don't have, because of my age, I've yeah. lost a lot of my uh, sensory capacity. Yeah. So I don't think I'm going to be doing that. If anything, it'd be voiceover. And I did I did a voiceover for Gene uh-huh. Moxie. Yeah. We had Gene. We had Gene and uh, Christine Uren on. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I did... Uh, a voiceover for him, yeah. But I, uh, that's about it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, he because he was designing a video game, and I uh, did a voiceover for him as well. Yeah. Was it for a video game, or was, was it for something? It's else? a video game. Right. Uh, on. It was set in a prison. Well, I think we were on the same thing. Alcatraz okay. Fifty Four. Well, wasn't that an experience? I Rich? love that. <laughs> you you sit in a in a soundproof booth. Yeah. There's nobody else around except an engineer on a on a one way mirror right. there. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. And you you're reading responses. Yeah. Okay. Give me number fifty two. Well, I think so. Give me fifty two again, a little higher. Well, I think so. <laughs> right. It's yeah. A totally it's a different, different way. It's a different way of acting. Unbelievable. But I tell you, the pay is good. The pay is good. Yes. The pay is really really good. Well, it's 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 sad because uh, I mean you know you always had a fantastic presence on stage. I remember last seeing you. Um, well, we did um, Pride Open, but our, I my fondest memories of you on stage was Audience, uh, the Vlock Havel piece. Yes, you acted oh, along man. with uh, I think it was Craig Souza. Oh man, I got a story to tell about that. You know, there was a very long script. Yes, and, and there were a lot of repeating words and r- repetitive four yes. four separate scenes. To yeah, s- uh, Bob directed it. And and Craig is beautiful to work with, very patient, very yes. giving. Yes. And and I wasn't able to keep up with the memorization, so I kept the script open in the in the dressing room. Mm-hmm. So during blackouts, yeah, I would scurry back to the dressing room mm-hmm. and I would read what the next scene was because mm-hmm. I'd have to cue myself that way. Yeah. One night I went in, they turned off the be- the dressing room lights. I couldn't find oh the no. script, and I was on my own. Oh, no. Craig saved me on that one. I, yeah. I got to thank that guy for the rest of my life. Yeah. But the audience was a gag because <laughs> you dr- you're drinking. I was drinking That's apple right. cider. Yeah. Uh, it's supposed to be beer, but it was, sure, it was sure, apple sure. cider. I haven't drunk apple cider since. <laughs> it was wonderful. Though. Now, see, I, now I have a piggyback story on that because so the way that – so uh, we would – it was Wonder Years Political Theater, and – the way that it was done, Series A, which were two one-act plays, were done one night. And then Series B were two one-act plays, which were done one night. You and I were on Series B. Statements came first. It was me and uh, Lorraine and I think uh, – I forget who the um, – I think it was Craig Souza, who was the inspector. And so, you know, we did our thing. 
And then immediately after that, it was you and Craig um, Souza who did audience. And, you know, you guys were drinking the uh, the apple cider. Sometimes it would get on the floor because, you know, you're drinking bunches and bunches. Oh, of yeah, yeah. And there were, right, and there were roaches that would, and this is, oh, this no. is, this is the real theater. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> there were roaches that were, uh, you know, like getting into it because, you know, sugary and all that oh, sort of stuff. Absolutely. So, you know, when we did our, our, our you know, our scene, of course, this is uh, this is a series. You know, I guess uh, the next night that we were doing series B, and of course, me and Lorraine are naked. Sometimes I'm doing a scene, but naked, and I'm sitting on the uh, the platform, and uh, sometimes a little roach <laughs> will try to crawl up my buns, <laughs> and I'd have to adjust myself. That was funny, but uh, no, those I had one. Oh man, moments. I'm sorry, I was so sloppy. <laughs> Terrible. No, hey, that's fine. I, I had a little bit of the apple cider too. But that was that series was fun. That yeah. was really a grin. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Hutch, I'm, I'm glad to have you on, and uh, thank you so much. You bet. My pleasure. Let's do it again sometime. Sure. Okay. Okay. So uh, you can find the Yay on the Apple Podcast app on all iPhones and iPads. Uh, that's that purple app that you probably never use. Uh, and now you folks are listening to it right now, but you can tell your friends. You can also find the Yay on iTunes if you're using a desktop or a laptop. Just click on iTunes, click on Store, use the search engine on the upper right-hand side, and search for the Yay. You can find us. For Android users, download the SoundCloud app and search for The Yay. The Yay was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise, if you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up on Facebook and we will take it from there. Thank you so much. Usually Norman and I will say uh, we've got to find a better sign-off, but I'm going to wait until Norman gets back. That's it. Thank you so much and uh, take care. <laughs> 